0: Okay, so I think we should get started. And this is like a very, very fun peric, in my opinion. I say that is actually my opinion. Um, because the story of Giron has three proche. It has Vav, Zayn and Chet, And Vav, we sort, of, we sort of got to know Giron. Vav is a very, very long peric. I just want to recap a little bit so that we can go forward and remember where we were. So um Israel begin to sin after the the you know, I'm starting to think in Hebrew. Uh, they had a period of quiet at the time of Devorah after the Shira and then did went to Shuva and there was peace 40 years and now well, that. Well, I don't want to be. I don't want to go into the discussion of the count of the years, but okay. But they have one period of peace, and now what happens is that the, um, the children of Israel sin, and seven years they're under the thumb of the Midianites. And the Midianites really um, have a, a very um, a different kind of oppression. Their oppression is basically financial, and they take over all the food supplies. And they, they come in, the, the Midianites make a coalition with the uh, Amalek and the Vinay Kedem, all these nomadic tent-dwelling tribes. And they all get together and they come into Israel at the time of the harvest <coughs> before any of the food is ripe, the grain, and they just destroy everything. And it's not actually clear if their intention is to steal or to destroy, or both—a little of both. But they do make a very big balagan, and so um, we're we're really seeing. I'm going to um, do a screen share. Okay. Um, So we have this cycle and the story of Gideon fits into the cycle basically pretty, pretty neatly. The B'nai Israel sin, right, and they, um, it's basically idol worship, the nature of the sin. And then the Hashem punishes them through their enemies, which is Midian in this case. And the Midianites come and attack their food supplies. And then we have a, an interruption in the cycle because we have it in chapter six. I'm just recapping chapter six now. Uh, we have the uh, the Navi comes, who the Chazal says Pinchas, and he rebukes them. And he says, what are you doing? And there's absolutely no reaction. There's absolutely that what we're told about. They just sort of shrug and go back to their business of idol worship. And then they seem to have come to a place where they cry out to God because, uh, this is the beginning of Parag the The oppression becomes very, very uh, difficult for them to deal with. Um Parag Pasuk Zayin by Hiki Zaku Banesal Shem. And it was when the children of Israel cried out to God about Midian. So this crying out to God is, is happening. And then the the Navi comes. And there is, instead of getting the judge, I guess this is where the interruption comes. Instead of getting a judge, they get the Navi. And then we have the interaction of Giddon with the angel. Now, Giddon doesn't know it's an angel. And he... he uh, opens up his heart and he says, you know, the angel says, God is with you. And he says, if God is with us, then why are we in this mess? Which proves that Gideon had a very, um, you know, personal uh, need to connect to God and a very, very strong desire to, uh, things to get better, He was suffering, you know, and, and feeling bad for his people. Okay. Now, what I wanted to point out over here, we'll take a look here, is that the end of chapter V, which we, we ran through chapter V very quickly. It's an extremely long chapter. When he meets the angel and there's this great miracle, and that it proves to him that God is there, then you know he says, Let me just make sure that you're actually talking to me. And he brings out food, and then the angel. You know, uh, turns uh, starts a fire and disappears in a puff of smoke, and then Gidon realizes that he's talking to an angel, and he Hashem tells him, "Don't be afraid." And his first mission, and this is something that I I am not sure if I mentioned last time, his first mission is to destroy the Avodah The Avodah has to go first, and this we see in Mitzrayim when the Jewish people bring the sheep for the carbon up, So that's when. The, um, the beginning of the gulahs, to get rid of the abodezarah of the Egyptians, which was sheep and other animals. And now Hashem could take the Jewish people out. So first Gidon has to prove himself by fighting the Baal, the idol worship of the Baal. And once he does that, once he's able to do that, destroys the, 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 um, the fattened bull for the idol worship he cuts down the Asherah tree he destroys the Mizpah and he uses these materials to build a new Mizpah to God and to bring the sacrifice to God it's a very interesting story at the end we find out that his father Yoash was actually the chief idol worshiper the chief of the Baal worship and when, when Gidon does this uh, act of defiance, the children of Israel, the children of Abiezer in that town of Ofra, come to Gid'on and say, we want to kill Gid'on because look what he did. And Yoash says, uh, if Baal is a god, let him, let him fight for himself, which is very, very interesting. He was protecting his son. Not clear if Yoash never believed in idols or he believes in idols and he stopped believing in idols. But What happens is now he he defends Gidon and gives him a new name, Yerubal. Yerubal indicates that one of Gidon's functions is to fight against the Baal, to fight against the idol worship. We saw afterwards at the end of chapter above that Gidon um, is ready to go out to battle and all of a sudden becomes afraid again. And he asks God for a sign. We talked about the sign of the fleece, which is Put out in the Goren. We have a picture here the Goren. He puts out a fleece of wool and he asks God to give him a sign. If the fleece is wet and all around it's dry, so that's one sign. And that actually happens, but God doesn't want to make the Goren dry. This is what the Chazal say, because we never take away dew. That is one of the brachas that we God doesn't want to suspend that prophet. So Ginner is not sure that this sign actually works. So he flips it and he says, let's have the whole go in covered with water and just the fleece in the middle dry. And that will be my sign. And that's a tremendous miracle because, of course, this, it's very um, not natural for the fleece not to absorb the water. So we, we are now heading into chapter 7. We have a little bit of a problem because we don't understand what is driving Gidon. Why is he at some point so, you know, goes forward? He goes forward with the, with the acts against the Baal, but he's he's very fearful. He's very nervous. Everything kind of he needs a sign. He needs a sign. So when we're looking at chapter seven, we see here it's divided pretty evenly into four parts, and chapter seven, the first part really is God refining the, the Jewish army and basically whittling them down to 300 men. The second part over here from verse 9 to verse 14 is another sign that God gives for Giddon, the dream of the Midianite. And in 15 to 18, Gideon prepares for the battle. And in 19 to 25, the battle actually happened. So, this is quite a dramatic story. So, let's take a look at what God says. Pasuk Olive. And on who in Yerubal, he's now called Yerubal, Yerubal gets up early and that is Gidon and all the people that were with him and they camped at Ein Harod, which is a spring El, uh, every time we see Ein, Ein Gedi, it's Maayan, it's a spring mm-hmm. So I set up a map for you Let's see where my map is no. Okay, so here is Ein Harod, if you could see, this is where the Jewish camp is and the Midianites are north of them at a place called Givat HaMoreh, which Rashi thinks is not specific, but a place where you look out, where you more, where you see out, where you teach, right? And Eid Harod is a spring. So, the Bet, Bed, R'shem HaGidon, Rav Ha'am Ha'Sheri Tach, Et Bi'adam, penitz Yitzpa'er Ala Mor Yodi HaShieli. And Hashem said to Gidon, The nation is too many that are with you. I cannot give midget in their hand because Israel will, er, Yitzpah'er is the hitpael, the reflexive, they will glorify themselves saying, Yadi Hoshi Ali. They will say, I won this war. And this is a very fascinating uh, story because really, what is God saying? So, you know, I know those Jews. If I win the battle for them, which is, of course, what God is going to do, if they think they won it by strength of arms or strength of numbers, they will not recognize my, that is God's hand in this war. And this is extremely important. It's extremely important. Kaddish Prabhupada who's saying here to Gid'on. This is going to be a miracle, and I want it to be an open miracle, and I want everyone to acknowledge that this is God's hand. I, I, I can't have you take a big army. Now, we'll, we'll crunch the numbers for a minute. The size of the Midianite camp is 135,000, 135,000 soldiers. Okay, we see this in chapter 8. The size of the Jewish army at this point in time is 32,000. They're less than 10% of the Midianite army. So even winning with that amount of people is a huge, huge miracle. But God says, no, it's not enough. Those Jews, they always take the credit for everything. And it's very, very sad that Hashem needs to do this. But this is what we say in the Sefer Devarim. We have the the Pasuk Vamartem. You come into the land and you inherit stuff and you get wealthy there, and you're going to say, My power and the strength of my hand gave me all this, chayel, all this wealth, all this power. Hail has a lot of meanings. And Hashem says, No, this is not the truth, right? You have to remember. It's God who gives you the co-op to do this. And this is absolutely a fact. And I, I was reminded of the famous story that happened in the Six-Day War. Now, can I cannot remember the name of the Christian? There was a Christian evangelical preacher who came to visit Israel, and he was standing on the top of the Golan Heights, looking down the Golan Heights. It's an unbelievable... If anyone's not been to the top, it's an experience. And you look down, you see the whole Galil is spread out before you. And taking the Golan Heights was an incredible miracle. So the Christian goes, "Wow, this is an amazing miracle! Like to take these heights. This is the battles of 1967 were, were amazingly miraculous." So the general, the Israeli general who was showing him around, was Matagur. And I said, no, it's not a miracle. We have a good army. Lest the Jews say, glorify themselves (laughs) because I'm such a good army. I always found this to be terribly um, ironic because very short time, six years later, we were uh, attacked by the Egyptians in the Yom Kippur War. And... um, it was a terrible, terrible war and it was very touchy go, right? We had a very tough time. The Israelis were very um, sure of themselves. And, um, you know, that's when you see you need a karach to take care of that. So, our first lesson is for some reason, people, when they have problems and when they have setbacks, they always say, Why is God doing this to me? And when they're successful, they say, Aren't I clever? I'm so resourceful. I'm so smart. And uh, we have to remember that when we're successful, it's key. If Hashem didn't want us to succeed, we wouldn't succeed in anything, right? It's a very big fallacy to think you can do your own thing. You know, it says in Tehillim, Kuf Chapizayan, Em Hashem lo by it. Shav Amlu Avdav Bo. I got that right. Shav Amlu Bo Nav Bo. Em Hashem shav shomer. If Hashem doesn't build a house, the workers are wasting their time. And if Hashem doesn't guard an ear, uh, if Hashem doesn't guard a city, then there's no points in putting up guards. So that's lesson number one. Just remember all success, everything good, right? comes from God and remember to thank God when you do succeed okay okay and now call in the ears of the nation saying who is afraid who is fearful Okay. The first thing God says is call out, make a general call and tell the people if you are fearful, if you are afraid, leave and 22,000 people leave now if we only had 32,000 22,000 people leave, we are left with 10,000 so this is already a little depressing but we have to look at these words for a moment. It's very interesting. Miya Reva This whole story echoes what we're told in the um, in the story in Dvarim, where we're told that this there's actually two types of war. There's what's called mitchemet mitzvah and milchemet Rashut. Milchemet mitzvah is the clearing out the seven nations defending ourselves against enemies. Melchized Rashid would be a war of conquest. And I actually don't think I can ever think of a Melchized Rashid that ever happened. But typically, the Kohen was was supposed to come and say, anyone who is uh, engaged and not married should stay home. Anyone who built a house and didn't live in it should stay home. Anyone who who, uh, planted a vineyard and uh, didn't didn't uh, take, take the fruit, he should stay home, and anyone who's afraid. Now, it seems that really we're aiming for the people who are afraid. And the Khazal say they were afraid of their sins. So however you interpret it, they were afraid. They don't want to go to the army. They think their sins will bring them down. The general understanding is that we don't want those people in the army because they're going to bring down the morale of everyone. And so these people are given a pass, leave. And in fact, we're told by the Chazal that the, the fact that there are four categories covers up the shame of those who are leaving because they're afraid. Now, there it says, who is afraid and of a, a swift heart, a delicate heart. Here it says, b'chared, and that echoes that they are at, in Harod. Alliteration and connecting sounds is a, is a way that the Tanakh uses to connect stories with each other. Like this is part of the story. These are the sounds that we get. And these are the DS and these are, um, um, what's the word? Mila mancha, I do not know how to say that in English. OK, anyway, then you have the word Yitzpor. Yitzpor also connects to the word Yitzpa'er. And the next passage is going to be Etzerfenu. Now, what does it mean Yitzpor? It could be from Sipor. Which means a bird that they'll fly away, and the other explanation is that it's from the Aramaic "safra," because you know if you sing this mirror it's "kari bone," right? "Shvachin asadir safra v'ramsha," right? "Safra" means in the morning. They should leave early in the morning. So what's the word? The point is these people. We don't have other categories here, and it's a milchemet mitzvah, so it's a very strange thing that really shouldn't be allowed out for any reason. but the idea is that they should leave early in the morning (coughs) for two reasons. One, it's embarrassing to leave because people understand that you're afraid of your sins or afraid, period. And two, we don't want the Midianites to know that the army is leaving. That's a dollar. Now Hashem says to get out. <coughs> too many people still. And Hashem tells Gidon, okay, it's too many. Ten thousand is too many. I want to have here an open miracle. I want to have. Less people, so many, so few people that it will be clear that it is God's will here. So take them to the water. I will refine them. Let's is to refine and purify. And I will tell you who goes and doesn't go. And that's our our next thing. Hashem is the one who understands people's hearts. We don't see that. You have to remember that. You should never judge other people because only Hashem sees their hearts. This is a very difficult pasuk. Let's let's take it slow. And he brought them down to the water. By "Anyone who laps, you know, in modern Hebrew, Lakikan, is a lollipop." Whoever laps with his tongue from the water, as a dog laps, put him in one faction. al and all those who kneel on their knees to drink, Rashi fills in here, put them on another faction. So you have two factions here, the dog lookers and the, and the, and the people who go down on their knees. And it was the number of the lacquer of the uh, liquors or lappers, who, with their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But and all the rest of the people kneeled on their knees to drink water. So, if we examine the two psukim together, hey and vav, we see. That one category are people who go down on their knees to drink, and the other category has two different descriptions, which are those who uh, lap with their tongues like a dog laps, and those who lap with their hands to their mouths. So that seems to be the same category, and there's only 300 of those, and those are the ones that God chooses. So we have to try to understand this. So first of all, the Dat Mikra, uh, the writer of the Shoftim was there, Yehuda Elitzur, and he he went to see how the Bedouin drink from springs in Beit in order to try to understand this story, which is like so amazing. And he says, right, this kind of drinking is unusual in our days. Shepherds and Bedouins on open springs. This is what they do. The drinker will sit or crouch next to the water, put his mouth close to the water, put his fingers in the water, and very quickly put the uh, bring the water with his fingers to his mouth. He lips the the water with this uh, um, bent finger until he. Um, like sisters, that's very interesting. Because picture this, like, so we're a little bit on them. And it's Like he's going down like this, and he's going. Uh. Now, if you picture the same thing, you picture the other people. They're going down on their knees. They're cupping their hands, and they're drinking in that way. So, what is going on here? Why are we separating the 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 down on the knees, cuppers, and the and the lappers? Okay. So there seems to be two basic schools of thought here. I'm just, uh, there's a lot of discussion on this, but I'm, I'll just try to um, cut to the chase. One is this practical. The practical uh, suggestion, which Rabag brings, <clears throat> that Mikra, is that these people are faster, cleaner, stronger, and what we call in Hebrew zizim, because if you get down, every, anyone who could try this, you get down on your knees, okay? It's much harder to get up from that position than from a crouching position. You crouch, you hold one hand, and you're able to jump up. Those people are much more battle ready. That's the practical aspect of it. But brings the spiritual aspect of it, which is that anyone who gets down on their, their knees is accustomed to serving idols. And this is what Rashi says, right? Uh, They're idol worshippers. So, what we've done here, right, is we've taken out 9,700 people from this mix. So, at this point in time, Gidon is left with 300 men, plus Zion, right? HaShem el-Gidon, b'shloosh said to Gidon, with the 300 men, the, the lipper I can't say, i mean, say the lappers or the lickers, the people who are lapping, I will save you with them, and I will give midget in your hand, and the rest of the nation can go to their place. Now, now, right, we begin to see Gidon. This, this, is, this is a very, very difficult situation. If you imagine yourself that you're, you're Gidon and you have 300 men and you're facing an army of 135,000 and camels, innumerable camels. And they're, it's just terrifying. Okay. But Gidon now really starts, he starts uh, stepping up to the plate, And the first thing he does, pasikhet. And he took the provisions, tzedah provisions, food, of the people in their hands, and their chauffeurs, and all the children of Israel sent to their tents, and he, the, the 300 men he held onto them, and the camp of Midrind was below him in the valley. OK, now, understand, number one, the value of food. Don't take your food home. The army needs your food, right? You go home and you find food over there. The food was more scarce than at any other time because their food is being destroyed by the Midianites. And then take the chauffeurs. So the chauffeurs are very significant in this story. And the chauffeur is usually uh, held by the head of every division and so let's say there'd be like a thousand men in a division and there would be one chauffeur. But now all the chauffeurs come to the three, each one of the 300 men has a chauffeur tet. Now we see the second part of the, the peric, and that is another sign for Gidon. So we have to kind of ask ourselves, like, what's going on with Gidon? Why does he need another sign? And generally, I think once you've Whittle down the army from 32,000 to 300. Practically speaking, that's a little nerve wracking. And that spiritually speaking, to find out that so many were idol worshippers is also daunting. So, Pusik Tet. Now, they are um, above the Midianite army. And Hashem says, go down, and there seems to have been some troop movement here. I'll look at the map for a second. The Jews have gone over to Midian with the 300 men, and they're near, the, they're above the Midianite camp at this point. And Hashem says to him, get up and go down to the camp, and I'm giving them in your hands. That's good. And if you're afraid to go down, so why does Hashem say that? Obviously, Hashem must recognize that Gidon is afraid, because like we said before, Hashem is the one who understands who are the people here, who are the um, the, uh, the the fearful ones, who are the ones that have been serving idols. Hashem knows, and Hashem knows at this point Gidon is like uh, is scary. But don't forget, he's had the sign of the fire. And the angel disappearing, he's had the sign of the fleece twice. And and now it, it seems he needs another sign. And one of the things that is remarkable about the story of Gideon is that a Kashmir who is is all in, a Kashmir who's willing to give him signs. Back in chapter Vov, when he says, Annash, I will test. I'm not sure if we spoke this out. You're not allowed to test God. It says clearly in the Torah, you're not allowed to test God. But what Gideon is testing is his own worthiness, it's Jewish people's worthiness. He's not testing God. It's not like God, he doesn't think God could do it. He doesn't think God will do it. And that's very different. Are you really sure you want to do this? So now it seems as if God is willing to hold Gideon's hand the whole way. And here God initiates it. Hashem says, if you're afraid, I'll give you another sign. So if you're afraid, if you're afraid to go down to battle, go down yourself with your, uh, your young man. In other words, the commanders had like a, a, an armor bearer, who was usually a great warrior themselves. Take just him down to the camp of the Bidjanites. And you will hear what they are saying and then your hand will be strong oh, in other words you, when you hear what they're saying, your hand will be strengthened and then you go down in the camp in other words that is that, right is to battle and here is to listen. okay so then by. So he and Fura, his young man, go down to the edge of the armed band that is in the camp. Now, don't forget, the camp is set up with a kind of circular situation, and the guards are armed all around it. Prosecute band. and Midian, and Amalek, and all the the sons of the East, the, the coalition that we mentioned last time, Of all these nomadic Bedouin-like tribes, no flimba, but they were falling in the valley. Rashi says Shoknim, they were, and Mitsuda says they were chonim. They were camped in the valley, but the Medrash says that this is foreshadowed that they're going to fall like locusts for multitudes. Like there was an unbelievable number of people in that valley. And their camels were innumerable like sand on the seashore, and that's it it must have been a tremendously overwhelming sight to see. And Gidon comes down and he hears one man a Midianite telling his friend, his dream. By Yomer. Chalom chalanti. Behold, I dreamt a dream. Lechem and behold, right, a roasted barley bread was rolling around in the camp of Midian. Bayaboada Ohil, and it came to the tent, Bayakehu, it struck it, Vayipol, and it fell down. And it turned it upside down, the mala, Minnafala Ohel, and the whole tent fell down. Okay, so dreams are bizarre, right? And all kinds of strange things can happen in a dream. But Gideon has been told to go down by a and he's down there listening to the dream of the Midjanite. And the Midianite says, I had this dream, and in my dream, a barley bread, a roasted barley bread, was rolling around the camp, and it knocked over the tent. So this is a very strange dream, because bread is like a small thing. If you can imagine a loaf of bread, and it could be the bread was really rotten, very heavy, didn't rise properly. But think about it, a loaf of bread cannot knock down a tent. So what does this mean? Okay, well, so first of all, if you look here at the the ketiv and the kri, the ketiv is Tzalul and the and the kri is Tzlil. So this word gives them farshim a, a lot of uh, um, difficulty, and they try to figure it out. And Rashi says here, or min hadikim means clear. That's how Yerushalayim Shal Zahav begins. The the air of the mountains is clear like wine. Very beautiful sort. And slil is actually, could be either um, here sli, roasted. Roasted barley bread, which is the way I took it. And also the, uh, the idea of tzlil is like a bell. So that could be, it was ringy through the camp. In any event, what's clear is that there is a barley bread, barley bread, and it's knocking down the tent. So what is what is the significance of the barley bread knocking down the tent? So really, what is the barley? OK, Rashi says here. Um, it is the, the merit of the carbon of the Omer. So we know that the, the day after Pesach, after the first day of the second day of Pesach, you're supposed to bring the Omer offering. And that's when we have, you know, now we have the sphere at omer but the Omer offering begins the second day of Pesach. And what happens is um, the the Omer, which is a barley offering, is brought as a, oh, I have this here, I have this. It is intended to strengthen faith by remembering the exodus from Egypt, right? We were commanded to sacrifice the new grain so that all our eating during the next year would be with this intention to strengthen our faith. Uh, even if the Omer sacrifice falls on Shabbat, it's harvesting, preparation, sacrifice, postponed Shabbat. It's interesting that it's barley. And even though wheat is the finest of the grains, the barley comes ripe first. And that is what allows us to eat all of the types of grain. And it's interesting that the Barley is generally food for animals. It's not necessarily the finest kind of food. But as we get to Shavuos, we get to uh, come out of our state of being like barley eaters, like, which is the animal side of people, and come toward Matan Torah, the Shavuos, and then we have the wheat. So there's a lot of symbolism to the barley. But what's clear is that the barley represents the Jewish people. That seems to be clear. So we could take it a number of ways, a very simplest way is saying, this barley bread represents agriculture, the Jews are the farmers, and the tent represents these uh, enemies, these nomadic tribes. So that's very clear that the Jews are going to win over the, over the Midianites. That seems to be very clear. And Rashi is bringing it to a place of merit. The merit of the barley offering is going to give them the, the ability to um, win over the Midianites. is a very beautiful medrash. I'll just give you the short version. The medrash says that the angel said to God, you know, you really are showing favoritism to Jewish people. And God says, well, I should show favoritism to them. I told them, you shall eat, you shall be satisfied, and you shall make a bracha. But they make a bracha and a kezayas. They're satisfied with the kezayas So, I too will be satisfied with even a small merit. I really love this medrash. So, the merit of the barley offering is enough for God to save the Jewish people at the time of Giddam. Okay. So, there he tells over this dream. Giddam is hearing him telling over the dream, right? And um, we should just conclude from that medrash that it's a very important thing to be satisfied with a little, it's a very big lesson. A little bit, you can be satisfied a little bit, and you can always bless God. The only possibility, Einzot, is nothing else to explain your dream except for the sword of Gidon, the son of Yoash, Israel. the man of Israel. God has given Midian in his hands the entire camp. And this is astounding. The conclusion that this Midianite draws from this dream is the only one conclusion. The Jews are going to win. And what's, other, what's also astounding is that they know Giddon. They heard of him. They heard of his father. And they're scared of him. He represents the threat. So something has happened. It's so interesting because they don't have any internet. How do they know about Gidon? His name has become famous perhaps because of the um, defeat that he, he Yerubal, he destroys the, the, uh, the idol, perhaps because of the earlier battle with his brothers, which we will talk about more in chapter 8. And he said that now when Gidon hears this, what does it mean to him? And when Gidon heard the telling of the dream and its shever, now it's interesting, it's an interesting word. Like when you break open something, you see the inside, the interpretation of the dream, right? Which is what the second man said, he bows down to God. Number one, thank God. First of all, always a lesson. The first thing you do when you hear something, is you thank God by Bel Machne Israel. He returns to the camp of Israel by Yomar. And he gets, says to them, get up, Hashem b'yedchem. because God has given the camp of Midjan in your hands. Now, this is really, really another one of the things that I love about know What did God say to him? God said to him, Um, get up. I have given them in your hand. And then in the dream, right, the the man says, right, God is giving the camp into the hand of Giddo, but Giddo comes to his people and says, God has given in your hands, which tells us the that talks about it, the tremendous humility of Giddo. He doesn't take the credit for himself and Another great me that we learn from him. We learn from him gratitude. We learn from him humility. And um, generally speaking, like I said I like Giton. He's a good guy. Okay. Anyway, my prejudices aside, and it's also fascinating that God likes him. Also, God goes along with all this, gives him a lot of handholding, and now Giton really steps up to the plate, and he's going to um, make an amazing victory. He divides up the 300 men into three groups. Actually, one of my students once told me that her boyfriend went to West Point and that they studied in West Point all these biblical battles, which I found fascinating. And this was one of the ones that they they studied. Right? He. She takes his 300 men and gives three groups, 100 men each group, and he gives each man a chauffeur and an empty jug and torches in the middle of the jugs. Now, watch Rashi is very fascinating here. Rashi says here, torches and chauffeurs. This is to remind us of the merit of the Torah. And of course, the real merit of the Jews is only the Torah. That's really what gives us merit, following the Torah. But then right is Upshuto. And the Pshat is, it was night. And it was dark. So they needed torches to lighten things up. And you, you needed to cover up the torches because you didn't want the Midianites to see them until the, wrong, until the right moment. right? And they put the torches in the jugs so they wouldn't see them. So this is very interesting because you have Rashi does something unusual here. Generally speaking, Rashi goes for pshat and then he'll tell you drash. When Rashi tells you drash first and then pshat, that means that Rashi really thinks the drash is pshat, if you're following me. In other words, when he says this is about the schut of Matan Torah, what do we hear? Recall ha'am Right, And then you have the you have This is a memory of, of Matan Torah. The people are seeing, it's such a strange expression, they're seeing the, the lights and the torches and the shofar, hearing the sound of the shofar and Rashi says that's really the pshat. The real pshat is we're recalling the merit of Matan Torah. That's what we need. But the Okay, so, but if you want the, the, the simple explanation is they needed light because it's pitch black. They have to cover up the light, so they put it in the, in the jugs. And they each need a chauffeur because they're going to make noise. How does this battle work? It's a, a crazy story. And he said to them a very, very famous expression. Me many to Watch what I do. Watch what I do, and then do that. And here it's interesting, because this is one of the mantras of the Israeli army. That's for the Israeli officers. Watch me. Follow me. They don't sit in the back like the you know, uh, nations of the world and send their soldiers to do the dirty work. Watch me. I'm going to come into the edge of the camp. So what I do, you do the same thing. V'takati b'shofar, I will blow the shofar. Anochi bechal me and my hundred men. U'takati shofar ro'd gamat hem svivot tola machaneh, ba'amartem la'Hashem u'legido. And I will blow the shofar, my people, right? And you also will blow the shofar all around the camp, and you will say for God and for Gid'on. Now. What's the th- what's going on here? In order to understand, the strategy is like this. Okay, you know, let's do your TET, and then I'll explain it to you. TET, and Gid'on and his hundred men came uh, to the edge of the camp. At the beginning of the middle watch, they had just um, woken up the guards excuse me, and they blew the chauffeurs, and they smashed the jugs that were in their hands. Okay, so let's talk about the Ashmoor of okay, and, and this is still true. The army divides the night into watches. Okay, so if we're going to say, for, for argument's sake, okay, which is probably something similar, that the three watches of the night would be from, let's say, 9pm to, to midnight, from midnight to 3, from 3 to 6. So what's going on? From, mid, from 9 p.m. to midnight, Still, there's still people up. From 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., people are, still, are starting to get up. So the middle watch, between midnight and 3 a.m., that's when you most likely have most people sleeping. What happens at the beginning of the watch? So you have the people who have been guarding for three hours who are now going to go to sleep and they're exhausted because they're standing guard for three hours on a very, you know, don't forget, they they had no electric lights. It's very dark over there. So they're just guarding and very on alert. And they're sent back, they're finished with their watch. So they go and they pass out, right? And the rest of the camp is asleep. And then you have the new guards that have been woken up. And they're like still like half asleep, you know, and they probably didn't get their coffee yet. And they're like, Ugh. And at that precise moment, Gino puts his plan into operation. And what's the plan? Okay? And it's very precise, because they're holding and this is going to be the next And the 300, the three groups uh, blew the chauffeur. And they broke their jugs. And they held the torch in the left hand. And the chauffeur's in the right hand. To blow. And they called for the, the sword of God and Gidon. Now, let's break this down. First of all, it's a little bit of a complicated maneuver. And when Ginnom says, Me meni he has to show them, probably drill them in the way it works. The way it works is they hold the shofar in the right hand. And the Arsamech says, that's why we a show for the right hand. We learned it from here. But in any event, you have that torch inside the jug. It must have been a little bit strange, right? But when you let go of the jug, it smashes on the floor makes a big racket and all of a sudden the light of the torch is revealed. meantime the blowing chauffeur. So all of those sleeping Midianites all of a sudden hear the crashing of, of, of 300 vessels right When you hear one thing break you startle right? 300 vessels all around and all of a sudden it's light and the chauffeurs 300 chauffeurs and they're yelling. For God and forget on, for God and forget on. And they are out of their sleep and they're totally, totally taken by surprise. Now, um, a number of things that I want to point out. First of all, the um, the merit of Matsutora is a very, very great thing, the lights and the torches, but the the strategy that put together here, we never really know in these cases, is this something that God told Giddo to do, or did he use his own uh, strategic thinking to figure this out? He, you, When you have a tremendous army of this size, it uh, surprises tremendous element. And don't forget, their morale is low. They're afraid of Giddo. They're afraid. They know he's coming, and they're terrified. Now, don't forget, the... Chauffeur represents probably a thousand men, so when they hear all those chauffeurs, they have no idea that that's it. This is just the three hundred men. They think every chauffeur represents a company of thousand or more. They've been waiting for the big attack. They knew that Gidon had mustered thousands of people. They didn't know that Gidon had sent them all away. So they're expecting huge numbers. So if they had guards posted. They're looking for troop movements of large amounts and they're totally missing this silent small band that's going in the dark with this little light on the ground from their torches and that sneaks around them. Now one thing that I want to mention also the Rambam says that when you ha- lay siege against uh, an army you must only um, uh, attack them on three sides. You have to leave them an open side for them to run away. And the, the rationale would be very practical because if they have a place to run away, they won't fight you. You'll take over, but if they are have no place to go, they're going to turn and fight. So the Midianites have one opening to the east where they could run away. Okay. Chavalev, Bayamdu Ishtach Sabir and they all stood there. The Jews had no weapons. It's unbelievable. They stood there, blowing their chauffeurs and showing their things and shouting. For Hashem and forget that we have to talk about that. And the people don't know what's going on. They don't know if we should run away. Should we fight? They don't know. And they think the people are running away are maybe the Jews and maybe the people who are here, the Jews and they all start attacking each other. Pasuk and they blew the 300 chauffeurs HaShem, HaShem put Etcheret each man's sword in his neighbor, the Midianites. And they're all fighting each other. They're in the dark. They don't know what's happening. They're just half asleep. And they get up and they start fighting anyone who's there. And they start attacking. So where's my map? Um, here, here is Har Tabor, here's Givat HaMoreh, her and they start running this way, south, south and east. This is Avel Machola, this is Cherata. okay, and they're running, and they are killing each other. I have to say, because I'm really, <laughs> I'm, these are my favorite biblical battles where they kill each other and the Jews don't have to do anything, right, it's very good. Saves trouble. And each, the men of Israel were gathered from Naphtali, from Asher, and from all of Manasseh, and they chased after Midian. So, okay, the, the northern tribes, Asher and Naphtali, come down and Manasseh, and they come to chase the Midianites. And ha- here, Watch. And messengers, Ginnon you know, sent, in all, saying, sent messengers in all the mountain of Ephraim, saying, And he sent messengers in all the mountain of Ephraim, saying, Go down toward the Midianites and capture the water until beth Barah and Jordan, so if you look here, okay, the Midianites are going south down the Jordan here, and the Harifrayim is over here. So Harifrayim, if the if the Jews are coming down from the north, right, they have to come down here to get ahead of the Midianites. But if the messengers from Harifrayim can go north, they can cut them off and hold the fords. Now basically we've seen this before, we saw this with with Ehud, if you remember, when the Moabites were on either side of the Jordan and Ehud captured the fords so that the Moabites couldn't go either way. So we have, the Jordan is kind of a nebby river and it's like thin, it's not, there are places where it's very possible to ford and places where it's much harder to cross. So if you stop the Midianites from going across, that means you can chase them and kill them off here. And you know rallies the Ephraim people, which we'll have to talk more about in chapter eight, the significance of that. And the Ephraim people come and they they stop, right? They capture the water, uh, the Jordan, and all the fords. And they captured the two officers of Midian, Owav and Zev. The uh, great name was Raven and Wolf. And they killed Orev, the raven, at the rock of Owav. The place names were named for these victories. And they killed Zev at the winery of Zev. And they chased toward Midian. And they brought the head of Zeb to Gidon, who this time had crossed the Jordan. So here we are over here, right? The people of Ephraim come here, they capture these two Midianite people, they, they name places after them, and Gidon is coming. And when Gidon comes, it seems like he's crossing or they're crossing, and they present him with the heads of these two officers, a tremendous, tremendous um, victory. Now, there's a couple of things that I didn't mention one is we didn't really talk about this this cry of Hashem el-Gidon, so Gidon tells them to cry for Hashem and for Gidon, right, um, and the Chazal, different commentators have problems with this, I, what do you mean for Hashem and for Gidon, and so uh, we didn't discuss it, but it's a whole situation, it seems the Barbanel says, well of course he's called for Gidon because they're afraid of Gidon. You see that from the dream. So it must be. It's useful to put his name in there, but they go through this and they say here. Um, Rashi says, "The cherub that kills from God, and the victory will be by the hand of Gidon." So it's it's something we didn't really talk about too much, but it doesn't seem like this is a. Um, we don't see that Gidon is a um, a balgaiva that he's a. A haughty person. It seems like this is all part of his strategy. Everything that he does is to make this um, go through. We see his his greatness here. That this this ruse, this this surprise attack, works and works so beautifully. And they're able to kill the uh, Midianite officers. Now, um, I do want to tell you one thing here. Um, okay, so basically. A uh, lesson from this is again, you know that it's also strategy, it's also the genius, and it's also coming from God. But uh, when I, when I go through this, I really I, I find it very helpful to understand the tremendous um, strategy here and how how this is this works. Take a look at this. You see this picture. Some of you may remember it. Some of you are too young. This is a picture of an Israeli soldier, okay? And this boy that is beaten bloody. And the caption says an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on the Temple Mount, okay? This actually is a boy from Chicago by the name of Tovia Grossman. And his story is very fascinating. And um, I'll just give you the short version because we're out of time. Basically, what happens is, it was Arab Rosh Hashanah. He was learning here in the Be'aqo, in Beis Yisrael. And with a few friends, two friends, he went to the coattail And it took a, an Arab taxi, which went through Wadi Joes. Now, at that time, the Intifada was just starting. This is the second Intifada. And they didn't know that this was a terribly dangerous thing to do. But when they went through Wadi Joes, a, a group of a huge number of 40 uh, Palestinians attacked the car and dragged them out of it and started beating them up. And here is the interesting passage here. Because it was the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the image of a shofar flashed through my mind, and I recalled a biblical story I'd learned in school. The prophet, you know, actually, the prophet, shofar Giddo, and his 300 men were badly outnumbered against the Midianite army of 130,000. So Giddon's troops banged pots and blew chauffeurs, hoping that the noise would scare the enemy. With God's help, the ploy worked, and Giddon won that battle. So I yelled at the top of my lungs. The Palestinians were startled momentarily. I was able to get up and run. And this actually, remembering the story of Giddon, saved this boy's life. And that's, that's a true story. And he tells it in his own words. I didn't put this up for you. It was a miracle, but I outrun them. I'd rather he startled them by yelling. It's fascinating, you know. In the in the uh, Battle of Forty Eight, they had this gun called a Davidka. It just made a lot of noise. It just made a lot of noise, and even and they didn't have bombs. They would throw down seltzer bottles from airplanes. This is documented. I didn't make this up. So sometimes you scare the enemy with noise, and he understood. That if he yells, that maybe that startled them. And he did, he startled them enough for him to run away. What happened with the picture is that the press assumed that if a, p- a policeman is holding a stick and someone's bloody, uh, that this is an Israeli attacking a Palestinian and on the Temple Mount, too. So, the, you know, his father wrote in, That's my son from Chicago. And there's no gas station on the Temple Mount. This happened in an Arab village. And uh, if you Google Tuvia Grossman, you can read the whole story. But you know what's the most fascinating part for me? This guy, right? This policeman, right? Um, Tuvia Grossman came on Aliyah in 2005, which is amazing. And in 2010, he's reunited with this this, uh, officer. Guess what his name is? know. Google it. He can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. He's actually not a Jew. He's actually a Druze. And they wrote about it. 2010. Tuvia Grossman finally met the police officer that saved his life, learning his name was Giron Svadi. Svadi is Israeli Druze, and he was chief superintendent of Israeli East Jerusalem Border Police. So it's an interesting thing how this, the 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 sound the noise was able to save giton you know, it was able to save this nice jewish boy